and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rose Quizon Villazor, Professor of Law at Rutgers University, Newark. We will discuss her article, Anti-Sanctuary and Immigration Localism, which she co-authored with Prathapan Gulasekaram and Rick Sue, and which is published in the Columbia Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Rose. Thank you, Brian. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Um, I've always loved your work and uh, always appreciated your support over over the years. And uh, it was a real pleasure reading this fascinating article, kind of thinking about immigration law in a way that frankly had never occurred to me before, which is is really a cool thing. Not that I'm an immigration scholar or anything, but I just this had never come to mind. So I, I was wondering if you could start for listeners who may not be that familiar with immigration policy, although I think it's on everyone's mind lately, uh, by by just explaining what exactly a sanctuary city is and sort of what that means in an immigration context. Great. Well, first, thank you for um, including me in this um, podcast and um, allowing me to share the work that I wrote with uh, Deep Glasakaram and Rick Sue. So uh, with respect to sanctuary cities, at the outset, I think it's really important to know that there is no legal definition of what sanctuary or what sanctuary city means. Um, there is also no general accepted meaning of that, and that is part of the larger problem that we're seeing on the political and legal context. Um, but I think if, if we were to talk more about how many people uh, define sanctuary cities, um, one, the best way to describe that is to um, define sanctuary cities as those cities that have chosen to not cooperate with the federal immigration law enforcement. And by that, I mean that some cities have said that they don't want to use their local resources to enforce the civil immigration law side of immigration law. Um, some cities have gone farther, further than that by saying that they also will not honor any type of detainer requests from the federal government unless there is a judicially signed warrant that requires them to detain a non-citizen. And so those are the, primarily the two main ways um, of that one can describe or has been, uh, can think about sanctuary cities and non-detainer requests, um, recognition, and also not cooperating with the federal government with respect to enforcing federal immigration laws. So is my understanding that in one form or another, some cities have been doing or kind of making policy along those lines that such that we could kind of loosely define them as, as sanctuary cities for, for quite some time. It's my understanding that it's become much more contentious in recent years. There's always been kind of a tension between local and federal governments with respect to the kind of sanctuary city context. But we've been hearing a lot more about that recently. Why is that? You're right to say that we have been hearing a lot more about it recently, but it, it is important to point out that sanctuary cities have been around since uh, the 1980s when um, when Central Americans were coming to the United States um, in order to seek asylum and federal immigration, um, the federal, then federal immigration agency was routinely denying 
um, the application, asylum applications of these Central Americans. And so during this time, sanctuary cities emerged um, in which places like the city of Berkeley or city of San Francisco in California um, have declared that their cities would be welcoming um, cities that they will provide a safe haven to these um, Central American refugee applicants. Fast forward several decades later, we are now um, also um, experiencing or we have experienced a new wave of sanctuary cities um, primarily to address the heightened enforcement of immigration laws by the Trump administration. And so there are certainly more uh, more cities who have said that they will welcome immigrants in their cities, that they will not honor detainer requests unless there's a signed warrant by a judge. And also, much more importantly, they will not cooperate with federal immigration um, officers in enforcing immigration law. And so that's why it's been happening, because since 2016, after President Trump got elected, immigration enforcement has been one of his primary um, policy um, priorities uh, from the passage of um, uh, from the adoption of the um, the Muslim ban to uh, passing an executive order that will seek to punish sanctuary cities. More, there really has been a lot more um, resistance being made by localities as a result of what they're seeing as increased immigration enforcement um, that has affected families, individuals and families in their communities. Mm-hmm. And you, you argue or observe, I guess, in your paper that federal efforts to kind of enforce Immigration, federal immigration law in relation to sanctuary cities. Others to kind of tr- to try to coerce sanctuary cities to cooperate rather than resist uh, federal immigration law have been relatively unsuccessful. Um, am I right in understanding it that way? And and if so, why is that? Why haven't federal efforts to coerce cities been very successful? The primary argument for that is the Tenth Amendment and our U.S. Constitution. Um, under the federalism system that we have um, in this country, the federal government cannot enforce, cannot coerce, cannot uh, require states and city and city governments to do the work that the federal government is supposed to be doing. And so under anti-coercion principles, um, cities have been quite successful in challenging these efforts by the federal government to require them, to coerce them into um, enforcing immigration laws. And so several lawsuits were filed in Chicago, in Pennsylvania, or um, in Philadelphia, in San Francisco, in New York, all challenging executive orders that were issued by President Trump in 2017 that have tried to punish sanctuary cities or sanctuary jurisdictions. Um, and by, by punish, I'm referring to financial, uh, a financial penalty. That is that the federal government has threatened to pull funds, federal support for these cities if they choose not to cooperate with the federal government. And under the 10th Amendment, these cities have been successful in saying that the Constitution prohibits you from requiring us to do your work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's such a fascinating kind of turnabout on those kind of anti-commandeering laws, which often are, it's easy to think of them as kind of being like kind of 
aligned with conservative policies, but it seems like they can be used for more progressive ends as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, um, I, I, as you pointed out, this uh, the, the concept of states' rights and local government rights have been used in the past um, in the anti-civil rights context and even in other contexts um, that in, in which the federal government tried to enforce progressive uh, pro- progressive legislation and states and local governments use states' rights um, and anti-coercion principles to resist those federal legislation. But those arguments can also be used in the immigration localism context, as that's what we refer to in, in, this, um, in this essay. Um, and that is, these local autonomy arguments may also be used in order to thwart any type of coercion by the federal government to enforce immigration laws. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the main focus of your paper is is not really so much on kind of federal efforts to prevent sanctuary cities, but rather you're looking at this new phenomenon, or at least I understand it to be a relatively new or relatively increased, like relatively new to increase sort of phenomenon of state governments trying to prevent um, municipalities and and local governments from establishing uh, sanctuary city like status. How is that different? And sort of what different questions are presented when we're talking about state governments rather than federal governments in relation to sanctuary cities? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, that is the, the essence of um, this, p- uh, the primary focus of this piece. Um, my co-authors and I have written in other work um, about federal uh, federalism and anti-coercion arguments and, and why cities have been successful there. In this essay, we examine states like Texas and Alabama, Indiana, Iowa, um, and other states that have passed anti-sanctuary laws. And what that means is that these laws seek to punish sanctuary cities within their states. And punishment can be in the form of denial of state funding, as well as individual sanctions against city or employees or municipal um, officers. And we think that this is a, a, it is a new phenomenon within the immigration law context. These state anti-sanctuary laws uh, began to emerge in the last uh, two or three years. And um, they uh, raise a host of different questions. Um, at the out, uh, primarily, it bring, uh, these laws bring immigration law to a new territory, uh, territory in which the focus is not the federal uh, versus city governments, but rather the relationship between the state and city governments. And historically, this type of state and city um, arguments uh, or uh, tensions are, are thought of uh, in ways that favor states. And so historically, there has been this um, presumption for state preemption, preemption, that a state can preempt a local government, a municipal, municipal government's laws or ordinances, in part because the thinking has been that cities are merely creatures of the state. But we argued in this piece that in fact, when we look much more closely at uh, localism jurisprudence, um, that reveals that there are uh, quite strong local autonomy arguments that cities can use in order to 
prevent states from preempting their sanctuary policies. Mm. So unlike in the kind of federal local context, you don't have this kind of federal constitution, 10th Amendment, anti-commandeering argument available to local governments. What what kinds of arguments could local governments make in relation to the state government in which they're located? And do those arguments like differ from state to state in terms of kind of the statutory and or constitutional relationships between the local governments and the state governments? Yeah. So uh, uh, in general, um, uh, we argued in this piece that the power of states to um, to regulate or to have any power over local or municipal governments is not absolute. Right. That power is not absolute. And and so so that's a, the that's just a general proposition. But you're right. It's uh, it depends the 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 power of a city to uh, resist state anti-sanctuary laws does depend on a state-by-state basis. It depends on um, whether there is a, um, if a city or a state has what's called home rule, um, it's a home rule jurisdiction or a Dillon's rule jurisdiction. Um, And by that, uh, we mean that um, within this um, body of law, home rule provides um, city um, city governments or local governments with a bit more power, uh, more control, more autonomy over um, their own areas that are uh, or issues or matters that are local, uh, local issues. Um, there are also, in addition to home rule, uh, the concept of home rule, there are also specific state constitutional or statutory restrictions on the ability of a state to control what a local government can or cannot do. Um, one does have to look at different states in order to see just how strong these local autonomy arguments are. Uh, what we wanted to point out was that it's not a foregone conclusion that just because a state passes an anti-sanctuary law, that that would automatically preempt um, these sanctuary cities. As we pointed out in the piece, there are quite robust localism arguments that can be made against these state anti-sanctuary laws. So one of the things I thought was really interesting that I'd never thought about before were the state law kind of analogs to anti-commandeering principles that you talk about in in your paper. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how different states might think differently about kind of state versus local government anti-commandeering principles. Great. So um, I, as we were talking about earlier, uh, anti, uh, anti-commandeering principle in the immigration law context has primarily been used by cities against the federal government, relying primarily on the 10th Amendment. But then what does that look like if the question becomes, or the question is, can a city use the same type of anti-commandeering principle against the states, right? And there it's, it's uh, the city, the, the, lo- the local government's ability to invoke that argument is, um, it might be thought of as limited because of the principle that cities are, uh, creatures of the state, but um, as we pointed out in the, in the paper, depending on the state and the type of uh, general local state local rule that is applicable, then the 
anti-commandeering principle uh, might still be used again by a city against a state, uh, because in some states, local governments have what might be called more powerful, uh, some power against state interference with local affairs. Um, in some states that have what's called home rule, uh, might be described as home rule jurisdictions, they typically have a lot more leeway in enacting laws and passing ordinances that deal primarily with municipal affairs or local internal affairs that a state cannot interfere with. Mm-hmm. So normally we would think of this tactic as sanctuary cities, as we've called them, trying to kind of defend their local policies from state government policies that are anti-sanctuary city. But you recognize in your paper that that could work the other way around as well. What would that look like? Like, what is that? what, What would that mean? And has that actually come up? Yeah, that's, um, and we had to recognize that because local government, uh, local localism um, can be used by both, by parties, as you, as um, some have argued in the, in California. So California has a, um, a, a series, a number of laws that have been collectively, collectively described as the state's sanctuary laws. Um, among those laws include um, the state of California said that local government should not enforce federal immigration policies. So there are, uh, for example, uh, some cities in California have um, essentially invoked uh, local autonomy arguments in order to resist to um, state California state sanctuary laws. And so there have been arguments filed by some of these the cities saying that they want to enforce immigration laws despite what the state sanctuary laws have said. So the uh, argument of immigration localism can support those sanctuary cities within, let's say, a state like Texas, as well as cities that want to comply or to cooperate with the federal immigration, with federal immigration enforcement in a city such as California, where there are uh, there is a robust sanctuary law. We're also seeing some kind of similar arguments being made in New Jersey. New Jersey has what is called the uh, New Jersey Immigrant Trust Directive. It's not a state law, but uh, per se, passed by the legislature, but it was passed by mm-hmm. the attorney general, which is the, the chief law enforcement officer. And this um, policy is similar to what California has essentially passed in that they uh, that the directive says that local governments um, do not have to comply with federal with the civil federal immigration laws unless there is some other uh, reason to do so, such as a judge is, is requiring them to do so. There are a number of counties in New Jersey that are arguing that they have the power to be able to, they have local powers in order to comply with federal immigration laws. So um, what we've identified in this piece seems to be um, making its way now through, certainly through the courts, but also within the uh, state local government uh, relationships. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I'd never really thought about this kind of sanctuary city, anti-sanctuary city 
dichotomy. I, I wonder, I mean, do you think there are reasons to believe from a kind of a policy or a, a normative standpoint that bolstering localism in immigration policy uh, might cut in favor of immigrants' rights rather than against it? I mean, are there kind of normative reasons to think that this might be a a sort of preferable way for the law to go? Mm-hmm. While we don't have empirical data, we are we can look through uh, history to, to show that over time, uh, in places where there have been anti-immigrant or anti-sanctuary types of legislation, um, cities eventually emerged, the, the sanctuary cities and uh, more welcoming types of cities have essentially emerged and have, um, and, and that principle has spread. California is a perfect, perfect example of that. The 1980s, California was a site of among the, um, the most uh, restrictive forms of immigration, state immigration enforcement or anti-immigrant sentiments. And yet, you know, a few dec- decades later, California is among the most progressive of the states in passing laws that are protective of immigrants. And so um, we do believe that um, there are ways in which immigration localism can be powerful in moving um, in, in creating this movement of protecting immigrants' rights. Um, as a normative matter, we do argue that immigration localism makes sense for that reason, um, that it's, its ability to have uh, to be able to protect immigrants. But we also think that immigration localism um, as a theoretical matter and as a descriptive matter makes sense because it, what's really happening on the ground. Um, part of the argument we make in this essay what, is to debunk the idea that the federal government has primary jurisdiction over immigration law. Certainly, that's where the doctrine Mm -hmm. is. The Supreme Court has recognized that immigration law is uh, primarily the domain of of federal immigration power, but that's not really consistent with what has been happening on the ground, what is uh, the states and local governments who who are stakeholders and have passed laws and policies that show that they are participating and um, affecting immigration enforcement. So in our mind, immigration localism disrupts this federal dominance narrative of immigration law. And what we hope to do theoretically, descriptively, and normatively is to force a rethinking of how immigration enforcement is being done or actually operates in the United States and force us to perhaps come up with a better doctrinal framework for addressing immigration enforcement in this country. Right. So that was, that was a really fascinating part of the paper for me. And I wonder, Rose, if in closing, you could talk a little bit more about this idea that immigration policy is, and really should be in significant part, a question of local policy and not just national federal policy. One thing I do want to um, emphasize is that we're not saying that immigration enforcement should only be governed by local governments. 
Um, instead, what we're arguing for is to um, is for us to for courts and policymakers to recognize that there are shared responsibilities, shared um, obligations, and privileges and benefits of immigration regulation and immigration enforcement. So for the last hundred years, uh, the doctrine in this area has developed in ways to suggest that um, it should only be the federal government that has primary um, authority over immigration law and the entrance of immigrants and their exit and their ability to stay in this country. But what we've shown is that states and local governments are just as invested in immigrants' ability to enter and to stay, whether they should be reported, how long, whether they should become permanent members of the United States. And so we, uh, we are pushing for a much more collaborative, um, a cooperative, or just a, a large, a, a different framework of thinking about how what immigration enforcement should look like, given that there are a number of stakeholders on both the public side, federal, state, and local governments, but also the private side. Um, there are also communities, employers, individuals, communities, churches that are also stakeholders in immigration enforcement. So we need to think broadly um, about what immigration enforcement um, ought to look like in this country because descriptively um, all of these different actors are already involved in immigration enforcement. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Rose. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for inviting me. I, I really appreciate this opportunity.
reason why I'm appealing to you. I've got a wife, four children, and a mother too. They reside in the West Indies and are depending on me financially. Friends, many days I feel I can die. I feel like committing suicide. So kind-hearted employers, my case is up to you. Give me something to do. The crooner Rudy Valley, or the songbird Mr. Bing Crosby. People, I want you to understand I am not Guy Lambard or the Paul Whiteman. This is plain Papa Houdini, the Calypso King of the West Indies. And every man was born to be free and to be happy from suppression and misery. 